Ladies and gentlemen, I am down bad. I am down so bad. I really want to smoke this Tory pack, but they're just not allowing it. They're just not allowing it. Oh, man. I want to fight them all. In the words, Pop Gummy Struck D, bring the noise. Fifth Home Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. So you're telling me that the first Prime Minister to actually legitimately break the law is going to stay in power? Is that what you're telling me? Now, bear in mind, guys, bear in mind, I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, 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 Mr. British History here, right? But I do remember. I do, I do remember something from those myriad of lessons um, in history, um, which was pretty much everything to do with World War Two, and that's it. Um, I, I distinctly remember us. I distinctly remember the 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 the, the, the uh, Britain changing prime minister during both world wars. Not even just World War Two, but both. So, what's the excuse here? I think um, is what I'm thinking. You know, what I mean, what what's, what what is the excuse? Because you know, sure, there's a you know, Ukraine is um, you know um, at war with Russia right now. Sure, you know what I mean, but that's a few miles away. I don't think that has like you know anything to do with. You know what's going on domestically in that fashion. You know what I mean. We're not actually in the World War, so to speak. In in you know compared to you know World War One and Two. You know what I mean. So if we're able to change Prime Minister during two World Wars, then what is the excuse here? Trust me, guys. They're finding a way. They are finding a way to bullshit their way through this. And I'm hearing none of it. I'm hearing absolutely none of it. I want to be smoking that Boris and Rishi Peck. Immediately, I want to be bunning that. Roll it up, billet, billet, spark it. I want it now. I want that. I want that bojo at Rishi Pack right now, right fucking now. But anyway, apart from that, hope you all have a good week. I've, I've had a decent week. Um, took took a took took a gunshot to my wallet, but it's all good. Apart from that, you know what I mean. Shout out to Jasmine and Mickey coming through. Um, to ends. Uh, hanged out with them in London for a couple of days. Uh, hit up a few restaurants, just, uh, you know, hit up some good places, um, and, uh, yeah, just saw Robert Glasper live, he brought out Leanne Havis and, uh, Common, which was just epic, um, so, yeah, man, it was, it was really good, really solid, really solid weekend, um, you know what I mean, got a blood test today, that's a record, so that's, there's nothing to do with you guys, but, you know, it's what it is, um, but, yeah, man, I'm, 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 it's all good, it's all good, can't complain, you know what I mean, always, always finding a reason to wake up in the morning, so, that's all, that's all you can do, celebrated, um, third anniversary of Digging In Digits, go peep that anniversary episode, did it for a good two hours, um, actually a very perfect episode if you want to just, um, you know, get to know me and Ben, um, you know, we drop a questionnaire on each other, uh, the Prowse questionnaire, if you guys don't know, it's kind of like a, I, I, I'll just go go piss go spin it. So, so, it's, it's a deep question there. Kind of it's open ended questions, and it you know it's supposed to like uh, 
really get to know the person but being asked the questions you know what i mean so it's one of those we also play a game as well and reflect on the show itself yada 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 um but yeah man it's just two hours of uh just of just us talking uh reflecting and uh yeah man just onwards and upwards on that front um so yeah that's two podcasts in three <laughs> in the three-year gap now um just go away on search of source i guess for the next one which is i think october or whatever or november um so yeah Apart from that, solid on the podcast front. And uh, speaking of podcasts, let's get into this one. Uh, we have a music, uh, life, art, and theatre uh, segments for you guys. And uh, let's get started. But four minutes before we begin, email to the IG. Just want to call that order. Order in the full show notes, please. Go peep the articles for yourself. Give them a read and support the writers that make this show possible. And with that said, let it be drop. And let's get into the show. In a week where Katanji Brown Jackson becomes the first black woman to be appointed to the US Supreme Court. Uh, Kochi Selimaj is jailed for a minimum of 36 years for the murder of Sabina Nessa. Uh, Will Smith is banned from the Oscars for 10 years, which is just uh, absolutely great. Just opening a whole can of worms. You know, he resigned. Doesn't really matter, right? But and I find it funny. I don't know who made this joke. Um, might be Michael Che on the Saturday Night Live. I'm not sure. Um, but basically, it was just like, yeah. Ban him from the literally the bo- most boring part of Oscars weekend, like the actual ceremony. He's sitting there for fucking five hours. Yeah, yeah, fine, sure. Ban, ban me from that. Oh no, what a shame. You know what a real a genuine punishment would be? Um, making him host next year. That'll be that'll be funny as shit. Actually, I think that'd be hilarious. Uh, Pakistan PM Imran Khan uh, uh, loses uh, no confidence vote. Um, so, Pakistan going in the mud right there. And uh, lastly, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak are fined for Partygate COVID rule breaking. And uh, yeah, I already had my quick little quick little outburst on that front. So let's hop right in to the boy Ed Sheeran. Um, so if you are unaware, um, he was recently in a plagiarism trial um, over his 2017 single "Shape of You." Um, and he won that uh, he won that case, um, but uh, it kind of leads a, a, an interesting precedent for you know songwriting and just modern pop music right now, um, especially in the streaming era. Um, so I found this uh, immediate reaction. Uh, this was on uh, Wednesday the sixth, so yes, nearly a week ago, uh, by Mark Beaumont of the Independent. Literally called the Ed Sheeran Shape of You verdict reveals the realities of pop songwriting in the streaming era. So with that said, let's jump right in. The judgment is an emphatic vindication of the creative genius of Ed, Johnny McDade and Steve Mack. Uh, so trumpeted Ed Sheeran's lawyers at the news that he uh, that he and his songwriting team had won the high-profile copyright case brought against him by Sammy Shockery and Ross O'Donoghue over similarities between Ed Sheeran's uh, 2017 hit Shape of You and Shockery's 2015 release OY. Steady on, a key pillar of Sheeran's defence uh, was that the passage it was that the passage in question for ascending pre-hook OIs, oh, uh, what you've heard the song, uh, was such. I don't know why I wanted to explain it, but you've heard the song. Was such, I? You literally couldn't escape that fucking song in 2017. You literally couldn't. It's 
fucking impossible. God damn, was annoying last track. Anyway, uh, was such a common and formulaic echo of the pentatonic scale, so overused and obvious, that it was all but unattributable. Uh, Sheeran even sang sections of Feeling Good and Blackstreet's No Diggity in court. <laughs> Fuck, listen to that. Uh, as evidence of how predictable he'd been uh, <laughs> while writing Shape of You. <laughs> so he literally had to dis- he literally had to basically explain how basic he is in order to win the case. I love it. It's just so poetic. Because that's literally the trumpet I've been blowing for five, like five years. It's just like the dude has literally made the same album for three years, for, all the, for like ten years now. And you lot just keep buying it. I just find it funny. And he had to actually do it to save his fucking career in some ways. Anyway, or credibility, let's say that. Funny, just just funny how that comes out. Uh, there's no triumph for the art of imaginative musicianship in Justice Sarkoli's uh, decision that Ed Sheeran... I keep saying Ed for some reason, but that Sheeran, I had to say his whole name, uh, had, quote, neither deliberately or subconsciously, unquote, ripped off Chokri's song or even heard it at all. Uh, what there is a what there is what there is is a timely recognition to is rather right, of the realities of pop songwriting in the streaming era. The ease of digital distribution has blown the gates of accessi- accessible music wide open. Figures in 2019 put the number of songs released on traditional formats over the previous 60 years at around 5 million. Today, it's estimated that 22 million songs are uploaded to Spotify every year at a rate of 60,000 per day. Somewhere in that tsunami of sound, by statistical inevitability, is a song closely resembling anything that any major songwriter might be knocking together around their Caribbean fire pit. Given such monumental outpourings, just as there always seems to be some someone online constructing the same meme as you, sonic commonality is inevitable, but conscious acts of plagiarism are far less likely. So the chances of one Taylor Swift's team... Uh, Chances of one of Taylor Swift's team uh, stumbling across your obscure pop song and using it as inspiration for her next hit are, I'm afraid, vanishingly small. At the same time, the huge income disparity between the guaranteed billion stream songs Ed Sheeran churns out and the pennies made by similar songs lost in the streaming depths only encourages copyright suits. It's understandable that the starving geniuses at the bottom of Pop's ecosystem would want to bypass all the luck, happenstance and major label financing it takes to attain success and sue their way to a livable wage. It might even feel like a storming of the Pop Bastille, a righteous strike for the little guy against the lazy, manipulative production line Fat Cats, and every major hit is a potential target. Uh, They're getting plenty of encouragement from the courts too. Dua Lipa is fighting two suits over her song Levitating, uh, with one purporting she copied it from a 1979 track called Wiggle and Giggle All Night by Corey Day, whose own mother couldn't whistle it. Uh, And in 2015, the estate of Marvin Gaye successfully sued the writers of Robin Thicke's Bloodlines for $5.3 million for mimicking the feel, quote-unquote feel, of Gaye's Got to Give It Up. Effectively, at only, at only a little stretch, being granted legal ownership of Funky. Uh, 200 musicians filed an amicus curiae, uh, I don't know my land, uh, brief to the appeal, uh, claiming that, quote, the verdict in this case threatens to punish songwriters for creating new music that is inspired by prior works, unquote. The Sheeran verdict might push put off such frivolous and opportunistic suits, and allow musicians to continue making music without fear of streaming oceans, streaming's ocean of financial piranhas. At his, uh, at his statement, rightly put it, quote, a culture where unwarranted claims are easily brought, dot, 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 is not 
is not constructive or conducive to a culture of creativity, unquote. But this casts both ways. The decision shouldn't act as a green light for pop speaker songwriter committees, lacking ideas to dredge the streaming sites for great but unknown songs, of which there are countless to pilfer with impunity. As we venture into new waters uh, for songwriting, we need to engender a new attitude too. If music is to continue as a form of communal cultural evolution, then this traditionally dog-eat-dog environment needs to develop a sense of honour and integrity. It must vow, in all cases, to give credit where credit is really due. That means acts plucked from nowhere uh, being offered equal songwriting standing. Writing teams behind major pop hits should be granted proper recognition, while contributions from the artists themselves must never be undervalued. Artists need to acknowledge their sources and actively seek clearance before they're forced to. It's an ideology that has helped dance and rap music thrive over decades, driven by artists rather than the money and opening doors for underground acts and protégé to keep the music fresh. Now it's time for pop, where credit is often the only source of a writer's income, to step up. Don't settle for copycat tunes, refuse to work with magpie plagiarists, keep your creative conscience clear. After all, where's the joy in performing music if it's teeming with guilt? I mean, shit, man. Ed Sheeran didn't. Uh, if he if he did have any guilt, then he clearly didn't. Um, well, if he can experience guilt, then he clearly didn't when it came to the actual track itself. Because I was, I, I forgot who did. I forgot who said this. Um, <clears throat> but like, it was it was a it was the nicest interview I was listening to, and um, they basically said like, you know. I need you when you're performing, you know, the same song over and over again. Which obviously, if you, you know, if you have hits, then you're obviously going to be performing that song for you know pretty much the rest of your life. You you're going to need to like that song. You're going to need to enjoy that song wholly, right? Um, there's there's um, there's a couple of times where I've heard artists say, you know, I, I don't I hate I don't like this song anymore, um, and you know sometimes they reluctantly play it. Um, there was a there was a track that Schoolboy Q. I remember he said he didn't like. I think it was Birds and the Bees. Um, and I mean that's a deep cut. He didn't have to play that one, but he played it when I saw him in Brixton. So, but it was interesting how he said I don't, I don't like the track anymore. Um, I think I think he said don't like the track anymore. You know, don't want to put words in his mouth. But he he basically said I didn't want to uh, play it, but he ended up playing it. I don't know. And there was also um, I think uh, Joey Badass said he uh, didn't want to like st- uh, he ran out of like uh, love for devastated because he kept playing that in in in, uh, in things and, uh, and maybe megan the stallion actually for uh uh for um uh, is it is it called fever i forget uh, i keep it written in the real fuck how you feel i'm getting money it is what it is um i forget what the track's called hang about but um yeah so you know she i think she said like damn i'll keep i've, I've been i've recorded i've done this i've sang this song for you know time in the past like couple of days or whatever um i think she was just being like um you know uh uh, uh, uh reeler that's it i literally just said it five times but anyway um <laughs> Uh, but yeah, you know, I feel like there's 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 that case, right? If, if you you need to you need to enjoy the track. So if Ed Sheeran was doing that without guilt, either he's a demon or genuinely didn't copy uh, didn't infringe on copyright. But I think the thing is this, and uh, this is something I came out of that article and just this whole thing with. Um, you need to have I. This is this is uh, while it is dog eat dog, right? I feel that I feel the dog eat dog nature of the creative arts, right? But if you're Ed Sheeran, you're good. You're you're fucking good. Okay, you really are good. You're fine. You're fine in life. 
is there really any need to plagiarise? I know it's the case that he didn't. So let's just, you know, say that he didn't officially. But if you had the mind to, why? You're good, bro. You know what I mean? And it's the same with any ice in the top, in the 1%. You don't need to. You know, there was a, there was a, someone made a case against Adele. I, she didn't um, actually put a case on her, but she basically claimed it on um, IG. Um, you know, she's, she stole not just the, the song, but like the music video. Um, I think it was the Easy On Me track. Um, so yeah, you know, there's always people coming and you're, you're either in two camps when that happens. You're either in the camp of, oh, you're just chasing clout, trying to get on the, trying to get on this person's coattails, da, 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 or you genuinely think they have a case, right? You, you're neither, you're either raw on that front, right? But my point is, finishing up and I feel I feel like this is the thing that needs to come out right this is the thing that, that people need to come out of this with if you're someone like Ed Sheeran again like the article said I feel like it's good that you need to do this all in good faith right you need to do this all in good faith but if you want the track just ask for the track cover it whatever but give him the songwriting credit simple as that put a person up if you want to put a person up go for it like, you, you could do an album of covers of songs that people have not heard of by artists that have, you know, 200 monthly Spotify listeners. Go for it, bro. If you really want to do it, go for it. Just give them the fucking credit. Whole, whole, you know, lift people up, bro. You're in the 1% of the 1%. Lift the people up. If you like their songwriting, get him in. Get him in for a session. Whatever. You know what I mean? Just do, just do something. Don't just... Jack, unaf- allegedly, right? Don't just jack allegedly. You know, just don't don't bother. You have you have the you have the platform. Put people on if you if you're that desperate for 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 new shit. Put some people on. Get some fresh songwriters. Whatever. Put some people on, man. Because there's always someone waiting. There's always someone trying to get on the come up. There's always someone trying to get on that catapult and hit and and lift themselves up. Hold out a hand and lift them up for for them. Lift them up because you think they're good. You know what I mean? Don't just do don't don't just do this put pussyfooting around. I'm not saying, you know, Ed Sheeran's pussyfooting, but you know, for any artist in the one percent, don't be pussyfooting about. Don't be trying to jack people's tracks. That's how we avoid this. That's literally how we avoid this. It's fine. It's fine. It's easy to avoid this. Just put people on. And then you won't have any worry, will you? Simple as that. Really, really as simple as that. in the theatre and uh, this is an article I found quite interesting just uh, reading I guess uh, 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 about obviously I enjoyed reading it believe it or not um, <laughs> it's basically about um, the uh, poet uh, amongst other things uh, Claudia Rankine um, American uh, poet and uh, she has a theatre show going on um, I think uh, you know, she, she's written a th- a f- I think she's written a play I think that's the I think that's the case and um, while this ting loads there we go uh, it's, yeah, her latest play Help basically um, and uh, it's point of it is to asks white folks to grapple with their white privilege um, so this is by Deep Tran uh, via Anscape it's called What Claudia Rankine Learned from Talking to White People and I just thought the title was very fascinating so you know just off the back of that I was just like hmm, that's interesting and I looked up who Claudia Rankine was and I was just like hmm interesting um, so let's jump right in. 
2019, poet and essayist Claudia Rankine uh, wrote a controversial piece in the New York Times called I Wanted to Know What White Men Thought About Their Privilege. So I asked. That essay received over 2,000 comments and Rankine's inbox was flooded with emails. Now the award-winning poet has turned the essay and the responses into a play called Help. The original essay was inspired by conversations Rankine had with partners in air- uh, strangers sorry, in airports uh, where she'd asked them point-blank about their white privilege. Casual racism and uh, discomfort ensued, and it spilled over into the comment section of that essay where people said things like, quote, Barack Obama and Kamala Harris certainly benefited from being black, and how come I, I'm always a standing for history, unquote. Uh, in Help, Rankine expands on the conversation she began the essay to navigate what she calls the stuckness inside racial hierarchies. Another quote, uh, white people and are the people around us, Rankine told Landscape. And if we're not even willing to find out what they're thinking, we are going to be surprised by their actions. And it would be fine if their actions were limited to them, but more often than not, the consequences of those actions are far-reaching, unquote. In Rankine's estimation, those actions include recent laws that make it harder for marginalised groups to vote, uh, that make it make it a crime to talk about gender and sexuality, and that are stripping away a woman's right to choose. Quote, you have actual legislation being put in place to undermine your ability to have any kind of agency around many aspects of your life, Rankine said, hence why the play is a cry and a call for, to action. Help is currently running through April 10th at The Shed, the gleaming $475 million art centre in the Hudson Yards area of New York City. Rankine, a 2016 MacArthur Genius Fellow, is best known for her poetry and essays, but she's also dabbled in playwriting. She's written a play about racism in academia called The White Card, and her poetry collection Citizen, an American Lyric, has been adapted for theatre. Help has one black character, the narrator, played by April Mathis, um, who is surrounded by a gaggle of white people. She comments on them to the audience, but also interacts with them. The play incorporates some of Rankine's conversations with strangers, like the one man who was disappointed that his son was not admitted to Yale, telling Rankine, quote, It's tough when you can't play the diversity card. <sighs> okay. Unquote. Rankine doesn't miss dismiss these offensive comments as microaggressions or the people who made them as deplorable. Instead, she views herself as something of an anthropologist, looking for clues on how to overcome Americans, America's racial, racial chasm. She even released a book in 2020 titled Just Us, An American Conversation, to explore how black and white people can better talk to each other about white supremacy. When Rankine speaks, there's no reproach in her voice, just a gentle inquisitiveness. For instance, one thing that Rankine learned is that many white folks have a different definition of white privilege than she does, which means that if the terms are not clearly defined, the conversation is doomed to fail. Quote, It was useful uh, for me to learn that for many white people, the use of the phrase white privilege just led them to economics, Rankine said. I'm not thinking about economics. I'm thinking about mobility. I'm thinking about your ability to leave your house, to send your children out without thinking the police is going to kill them. I'm over here thinking about how are you able to live your life when I cannot, unquote. She found herself having to persuade people to think of privilege beyond wealth, quote, to get people to understand that when I use this term, this is what I'm thinking. And I'm not saying you didn't work hard for what you have, but I am asking you to look at the ways in which the structure has helped you, unquote. The most fruitful uh, moments from such conversations haven't been agreement or deciding who's right. Instead, they were acknowledging disagreement in a way that was respectful and not combative. Quote, when we can 
uh, when we can at least even get to a point where we know what our differences are, said Renke. Uh, granted, these are one-on-one conversations, and who knows what ripples they may have. But Rankine said dialogue is even more necessary now. Quote, It might not feel like enough to some people, but to me, it's a start, she said. We are so unfamiliar with having difficult conversations around ra- racial differences and racism and the culture's commitment to white supremacy. With the move to remove books from the classroom and condemn critical race theory, people are really saying, I don't want the discomfort of American history in my children's lives and my life, complicate my ability to leave yesterday behind and move forward without changing anything, unquote. Help ran for a few performances at the Shed in early 2020 before the coronavirus pandemic shut everything down. In the two years since, Rankin revised the play incorporating more recent events, particularly the riot at the US Capitol on January 6th, 2021. Help makes clear that white supremacy is a danger not only to black people, but to white people and democracy. As a January 6th insurrection demonstrated, white supremacy is willing to tear down American society to preserve itself. (laughs) I just want to stop there. It just just sounds like a a snakey in itself, basically. That's that's kind of of the imagery I just got from that. That was was a crazy imagery I just got there. Uh, Don't tread on me, but I'll eat myself. Um, So help isn't just a meditation on the importance of conversation. It's a call to action because, as Rankine wrote, we're in the emergency. Another quote, we can't afford to become exhausted at this moment, Rankine said. There is some need for us to allow ourselves to feel into the difficulty, to understand what is difficult, to have that feeling be legitimate for us so that we can address it, so that we don't dissociate from uh, from the life uh, that we're in. I think it would be a great danger for all of us if those of us who have been engaged up till now now, begin to dissociate from the struggle that is no doubt coming, unquote. So how does Rankine prevent herself from burning out and disassociating from our current reality? Quote, sleep, she said with a right chuckle. But also, I think for me, work is the great antidote. To be able to express what it is I see helps me see. Unquote. (sighs) Um, Okay, so I think think this is kind of fascinating on on one end because I, I, I especially was thinking about the just the inquisitiveness part that she was talking about you know what i mean so I've, I've just looked her up she's a she's 58 years old right um born in jamaica funny enough um so she does this is the thing right that i feel that i feel constantly when you know there's there's, there's people like there's people like claudia that are able to just you know reach out and be a bridge you know I'd like to say I am I could be a bridge, but I don't think I have the energy to do that. Um the more I learn in my time uh about my time and about history as well, I just get jaded and I just I just get I'm just like fuck that. <laughs> like I I there's there's some things I wanted I, I would love to, you know, um, I'd love to teach people about, right, and, 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 and you know, I try to do that out here in some fashion, right, I talk about the things I, I, I like to talk about, I like the things that help me learn certain things, or develop on certain things, right, that's all what this is, but having to, having conversations with just, you know, just strangers, and it just, and they're just like, mask off, and they don't even know it, it's just, it's just jarring, I'm just like, okay, bye, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go ahead and leave, and 
you know, that shit sticks with me, man. That shit can stick with me. And I appreciate someone for someone like for someone like Claudia because clearly that shit don't stick to her. And I I would love that superpower because it is in some way to 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 constantly to 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 willingly take um, the opinions of uh, you know of just of just random people. And it don't have to be white dudes, whatever. It could just be anybody. Oh. Excuse me, oh, you're yawning. Um, you know, if it doesn't, it doesn't have to be just general white dude, white dude, right? It doesn't have to be white dude number one. But even any stranger, when they just say dumb shit, I'm just like, okay, I'm just gonna walk. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like just keep it moving, man. But uh, you know, even um, it was funny. Like this reminds me of like um, uh, I was on the way back home the other uh, the other day. Um, I was just like, I was about to just um, my ticket went working. So I was about to just hand my ticket to to a guy. Just go like, yo, I'm just trying, just trying to go on that train. Um, but right behind us, and it was an old black dude, right? And uh, I was just about to, you know, just hail him. Um, but uh, a tone, turn, he's like looking, uh, he's like looking behind me. And I'm just like, what's going on? Because I have my earphones in. So I'm just like, I've, uh, so I couldn't really hear specifically. So I looked down and I was just like, okay, there's a, why is there a puddle of coffee there? And then I look up and then there's just two white dudes fighting. And uh, they're just one's just clapping the other, and like the other one's like, you know, just like kneeling on the floor, just like, uh, just and, and just wailing into each other, right? I'm just standing there, just just like watching, and then I turn around, and then I just go, yeah, here's my ticket, <laughs> and he just he just goes to me, he just goes, uh, are you okay? And so I'm just like, yeah, yeah, I'm just uh, trying to get through for the for the train there, and then that's it, and just keep it moving. So you know, a lot of the time, I just don't. I'm not. I don't think I'm that person where I'm just like you know have that anthropo- anthropological flair to um, to uh, talk to strangers about certain things, right? I can do that with my people. I can do that with my friends. But even with that said, I don't do that to my mum because I just rather not have those conversations with my mum. I don't know why, man. So I'd, as much as I'd like to be a person, the person that Claudia is. Um, on the anthropological nature of things and how she, you know, has the ability to just, you know, take these, take these dumbass fucking uh, things, and uh, in 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 life, and uh, in society, and just and just not get and not have them stick to her is just admirable. I highly respect it. Um, and while I like to say I could do that, I I don't think I can. I don't think I have the bandwidth to do that. I really don't. Um, but um, you know, that's kind of the challenge I think that comes with everything, um, especially as a person of color, to go to go through life and to and to and to have the ability to either keep it moving or just let that shit not stick to you. Um, you know, and it, it requires it requires a lot of energy. Um, some days you just don't have it, and, uh, you know, for a lot of times, I hear something, you know, on the news or whatever, and I can't stop thinking about it for, like, I can't stop thinking, you know, I see on something on Twitter, I see a dumbass quote on Twitter, you know, for, especially the fact that I've, um, you know, I've just been, uh, you know, reading about the recent Pygate shit, it's just a lot of the quotes are just sticking to me, it's just like, how do you have the, how do you have the audacity to come from nurses, bro? You know what I mean? Like, you're clapping for them a couple of years ago, and now you're shitting on them. It's just crazy. Stuff like that just sticks to me. And, um, you know, and I, it makes me... It, it makes me feel vindictive in some way. Um, 
but you know I do get over it at some point. But I can, yeah. You know, but sometimes, man, I just, I just remember it. You know what I mean, it's a it's a move on. But you know, as soon as I see that person again, I just it just all comes flooding back, and I'm just like, oh yes, I want to fight you. I forget. You know what I mean? So I can take, I can I can put it in the back. You know what I mean? But as soon as I see their face again, like Michael Fabricant's spaghetti head fucking face, I want to fight him. But you know, as soon as I don't see his face, I'm good. Like, as long as I don't see his face, I'm good. So, um, if there's any therapists that heard what I just said for the past 10 minutes, um, then go ahead and uh, break that down because I've, <laughs> I have no idea how to take that. But shout out to Claudia Rankine. Um, if you're in the New York area, go speak that play. Let me know what's up. Um, but yeah, man, just sounds like a really good thing. And, um, you know, just uh, big ups to her for be able, being able to take bullshit in my mind and uh, and make it up take bullshit make it art that's isn't that isn't that isn't that uh, creativity in some in some sense uh, in some senses so let's hop into uh more art I guess um, obviously the previous segment was theatre technically so I've, I've split up into art and theatre whatever uh, doesn't matter but uh, this is I mean this is kind of I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna broaden this uh, particular piece um, uh, even though it's it's called why it's not important to find your photography niche and I'll read it and um, you know obviously it has to do with photography um, but I feel like this can work for a lot of things. Um, you know, I feel like this can work uh, for any form of creativity, I believe. Um, so, regardless of what it says about um, photography, and, you know, obviously, you know, just just instead of replace the word photography for whatever you're doing creative, creatively, uh, whether it's writing, painting, acting, what camera, you know, or photography, <laughs> you know what I mean? Just, just, uh, just, put it in your put it put it in your uh, context uh, because I feel like this is a worthy message for a lot of creative people um, and this, this is this is just good for good for me as, as I believe it would be good for you as well if you're a creative person um, so this is by Dan uh, Ginn uh, via the photographer. <laughs> I love the name honestly but uh, yeah this is, this is, let's jump right into this what's my photography niche how do I find how do I find my photography niche I'm struggling to find my niche. There are some of these. There are some of the questions and comments that arise for the photographers. Uh, once the initial infatuation fades, many believe it's time to knuckle down and find a genre that best amplifies their photographic voice. When people can't find that niche, they become disillusioned and feel like something is wrong, but there isn't. Uh, there are good reasons to find a photography niche. First of all, it allows you to invest your time and energy into one genre, studying it and improvising, uh, improving sorry your skills within that area. Doing the same type of photography many times will help you progress quicker than doing it every now and then. Secondly, having a niche allows you to build an audience that can connect to your photography. Over time, they can instantly recognize your work. Naturally, this will take time and most people won't reach this point, but by sticking to one genre, you have a better chance of establishing your name in a particular section of the photo industry. Another thing having a photography niche makes easier is networking. If you're thinking of going pro or wish to establish your name in the field, then networking is an integral part of achieving that goal. 
It's difficult to network with multiple people in multiple genres, especially if you want to do it effectively. Sticking to one photography niche makes it easier to target the influential people within that genre. You can build more meaningful and sustainable relationships, which will benefit you in the long run for your, if your photography is good. You may be thinking, with all uh, with all that's good, with all that's good with finding a niche, why are you about to say it doesn't matter? Follow me. First of all. Not everyone who practices photography does so to get into the deep end. I'd argue that most photographers, people who have a camera, are just dipping in and out of the art form. They sometimes take their camera with them and sometimes they'll quite happily leave it at home. There's no real reason for them to lock down on a niche unless they want to and casual shooting is the best decision. Then you have the enthusiasts who have decided that their smartphone camera won't cut it I need a dedicated camera to advance the next level. Ooh, is that me? I think it is. Um, they like their day job, but want to take photography seriously to the point others classify them as real photographers. Yeah, this is me. Uh, this type of photographer is the one who frets about having a photography niche. I'll tell you where I'm at, by the way, on the photography niche side of it at the end. But anyway, um, I often see them on Reddit asking the community what they can do to find the niche they strongly believe they need. The truth is, There's nothing wrong with shooting many genres and not dedicating uh, yourself to one. If you like all types of photography, then so be it. It's not bad. If you want to shoot landscape one week and street photography the next, why is that a problem? I'd argue that uh, being a versatile photographer is almost a niche in itself. Over time, not having a specific niche will allow you to create an eclectic portfolio. It shows you're passionate about all types of photography. Uh, Being versatile gives you the opportunity to experience more things in life. Photography isn't just about the uh, about the photos. It's about traveling, learning, challenging yourself, and achieving at comfort achieving comfort outside your comfort zone. I've said before, photography offers many life lessons, and being a jack of all trades will undoubtedly teach you a lot. Don't overly concern yourself about finding your photography niche. If you find it, awesome. But if not, it's far from the end of the world. Just because the unwritten rule book tells you to do something, it doesn't mean you're you're wrong if you don't. Above all else, photography is about enjoyment, and it's about having something that makes this life dif- uh, make this difficult life a little bit a little more tolerable. Let's not spoil it by worrying about things that aren't important in the long run. So be comfortable outside of the niche. Be grateful you have the craft and enjoy your photographic journey. Uh, yeah, so that's pretty much it. And um, I again, I feel like this applies to a lot of things. I feel like this applies to a lot of, especially a lot of creative elements. Like, uh, you know, as pertains to my screenwriting, I don't think I have a niche, right? Um, I, I say I do urban dramas, but, you know, I've done, I've done different things, right? I've, I've done a, I've made a, uh, a, a, you know, a couple of pilots, one of them animated, right? Well, in my mind, animated, right? Um, yeah, you know, I've, I've dabbled in comedy a bit. I've done a couple of shorts, right? So, you know, not all of it, not all of them are the same. I feel like all of mine are di- have different tones towards them. Um, they might all be, they might majority be set in London, but that's kind of it. That's kind of the only link link towards there. Maybe the theme th- and maybe certain themes I keep. Um, so if you want to consider that my niche, then sure. Um, but that's a lot to explain to somebody. If, if it's like if they say, "What's your niche?" It's like, um, yeah. So I have like several themes, like this is this, and also I base my shit in London. This is this. Yeah, you know I mean it's a lot. So. I feel like it has to be simple, like street photography or landscape. On my photography side, personally, I feel like, um, you know, even as I look through my photos the past weekend, I was, uh, you know, I, I did certain things. I did a bit of street photography. Um, I did a bit of just, uh, you know, general 
um, landscape. I love, to, you know, taking pictures of, you know, sunsets and, uh, you know, the clouds and stuff like that. I love being landscape. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I dibble and dabble. I feel like I'm decent at, at some things, you know what I mean? Um, something that really catches my eye personally for me um, I'm really getting into like monochrome. I feel like monochrome is my thing. I like. I, I'm. I'm really enjoying monochrome, um, and uh, and also, uh, I don't. I don't use film grain a lot, um, but I do like uh, using film grain now and again. I use it sparingly, but when I do, it's like it's, it looks fire. Um, so yeah, but I, I think monochrome's a thing I really enjoy doing. I, I like things in monochrome. I don't know why. Um, but even as I said, you know, I still do most things in colour, majority of the things in colour, majority of my photos in colour. Um, but yeah, I don't consider that a niche quite yet, you know what I mean? Um, but I feel like I'm decent. And honestly, he kind of worked, told me to a T, like, who I am, by the by the way. So it's just like, I, I didn't want to rely on my ca- my phone camera anymore. I wanted to take proper photos. And uh, that's why, that's partly why I got a camera. Um, I've already, I think I told the deeper reason why. Um, age, a few months ago on the show so you know uh, yeah it was, it was interesting how he just read me like that I was just I was like yeah that's pretty much me and you know people consider me a photographer and I'm just like yeah I'm not quite there yet I've, you know I've, I've only been doing it for a year you know what I mean so um, it's not it's not too deep I don't have a website or nothing I don't have a photo book I'm gonna do, print out and sell you know what I mean I'm not gonna do any of that so um, but you know maybe in time who knows but anyway going out to you guys you know if you if you are creative um I I do wonder like um do you do you fret about this? I've never fretted about this kind of thing. I've never fretted about uh, fretted about having a niche um artistically in any fashion. Um you know my sister's done many types of uh she's she's an artist. She's done um, you know she uh, usually does paintings uh, mainly, but you know she's done sketching. She's she used to do uh, she used to do um manga drawing. She used to do uh, a fucking uh, origami. She used to do that shit. Um, yeah, she used to, she she dabbles in a lot of things, and you know, I don't think she has a niche. I don't. If I asked her if she had a niche, I was like, you know, I don't think she'd say she have she has a niche. Um, I think more recently she's been doing uh, dabbling in pointillism, which I really fucking love. I like I like pointillism. I like her stuff on that. Um, but yeah, you know, I don't think she has a niche, and I don't think I have a niche either. Um, you know, I don't. I don't, I don't even with the, even with the podcast, if you want to consider that, I don't consider I have a niche on that. Um, obviously, talking is a thing, but it's not. I don't consider that a niche. You know what I mean? I do what's good, and that's you know it covers several, a, a myriad of subjects. I do ding and digits, and that obviously covers hip hop. Um, you know, search a source that covers music journalism. So there's no niche for even the podcast network that I run. Um, so I've, I kind of find that interesting thinking about it. Um, but honestly, um, as long as you rate your work, um, I think it's fine, I really think it's fine, um, I would love to have a niche, I would love to have, you know, something that I would love to just do that, but I love most, I love most forms of photography, I love, I love portrait photography, I love landscape photography, I love street photography, I love all three of those, um, so I'm probably gonna do those, you know what I mean, that's, 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 that's what I'm gonna fuck with, um, I like, uh, you know, just general photography of walking about and just, uh, you know, taking pictures of, you know, just people walking by and stuff like that. It's just, it's just fun. It's just fun to do. It's relaxing. Um, and you know, when you find a good photo and you're just like, oh, that's, that's clean. That's clean. I like that. You know what I mean? So it's just nice. It's just nice to have, um, I'd, I'd say I'd love to have a niche, but honestly, I like the fact that I enjoy many things. Um, 
And, you know, what, what's life? What's life if you're going to eat the same pie? What's life if you're going to eat the same... Uh, if you're going to eat the same carbonara, you know what I mean? Or, or have, a, you know, the same fish and chips. If you're going to have the same dish every day, you know what I mean? Switch it up, man. Switch it up. Um, so, yeah. I I feel like that's a, that was an interesting just thing to talk about on my side, um, uh, personally, but obviously for you guys as well, I want to, I, I, I'd like to know if you guys, uh, if you are creative, what do you do, um, you know, if you, and if you consider yourself to have a niche, obviously in some things you need to have a niche, I get, I think, I, I'd like to say that, um, you know, in, in certain professional circles, it, it you know, like, like, like Dan said, you know what I mean, it helps, um, especially if you're trying to go pro, um, but mate, if you're just like me, and you're kind of in the middle where you're just like not a casual, but you're, a, you know, a low-key enthusiast and you enjoy taking photos. Um, you know, don't limit yourself. That's that's kind of, I, I don't, I, I do think of it as limiting. I do. Um, uh, now, if it's for money, then that's different. But I'm not getting money from that. So, I don't consider it. so um, at this point in time, I'm not going to limit myself. If someone wants to pay me for something specific, then sure. Then I won't limit myself, then will I? I'll just do that. But at this point in time, do what you want, man. Just if you if you got if you have that freedom, do what the fuck you want. That's all. That's all, and that's your niche. Doing what the fuck you want. That's that's my niche. Doing what I want. There you go. There we go. We're locked in. Locked in, lads. Doing what you want. So we finish off with um, life, and uh, I found this uh, very interesting. Uh, I think it's an excerpt from a book, actually. Um, so yeah, it's it's, uh, it's from a. This is a. I think part of a book, or just a gas up a book. Um, it's called "Regrets of the Dying: Stories and Wisdom uh, That Remind Us How to Live" by Georgina Skull. Um, and uh, this piece is by Georgina Skull, so I'm assuming this is an excerpt from the book. Um, and it's called "Having a Near-Death Experience Taught Me How to Live Better." And uh, yeah, I just found this very—I just found this an interesting read. Um, this is via the Guardian. Um, I just found this a really interesting read, and um, you know, I feel like this is always this is something that I feel like uh, it's worth thinking about um, now and again. Um, yeah, I, I feel like talking about talking about mortality as humans, I think is healthy. Um, you know, not all the time, but sometimes. You know, just and thinking about um, you know, there's always a moment now and again, not often, you know, probably like, I don't know, once a month, where I'm just like, damn, I'm going to be dead, I'm going to be dead at some point, and you just won't know what happens next, you know what I mean, that unknown of not knowing what happens next is just, it's so daunting, and then you just move on with life all of a sudden, it's just, that's really weird, it's, it's so weird, I don't know if anybody else does that, but um, yeah, anyway, uh, so let's, let's jump right into this, because this is interesting. <laughs> I'm not sure if uh, I'm not sure I ever fully appreciated my life until I nearly lost it. In fact, I'm sure I didn't. On the surface, everything was good. I was married and living overseas with our two-year-old daughter. There was th- food on the table and a roof over our heads, but, I, but it felt as if I was drifting, constantly waiting for my real life to start. And then, at 37, I had an ectopic pregnancy, which ruptured, and I nearly died. That was ten years ago. It should have been the start of my second chance, the jolt to get me going, but I'm afraid it wasn't. Um, I was alive, but I still wasn't really living. I still seemed to be stuck in all the things I hadn't done over the years, rather than enjoying all the things that I did. Excuse me. As the days and weeks passed, my regrets just grew. 
Part of the problem was that my list of good things, the marriage, the family, wasn't completely accurate. There was a lot of good in my life, but but there was other stuff going on as well under the surface. I was heading towards 40 without a career, in a relationship that didn't quite work, and living in a place that didn't really feel like home. Basically, I was unhappy. Why do we drift through life, planning for tomorrow but not living for today? Why do we stay in relationships that no longer make us content or in jobs that fill us with dread? Why do we allow our doubts to stop us from trying new things or let people treat us so badly? I wanted to find out the answers to all of these questions because I wanted to live differently. I didn't want to be stuck anymore. I wanted to work out what what we regret and how we could all learn to regret a little bit less. So after yet more drift, we moved back to the UK and I decided to face it head on. I decided that rather than look to myself answers, I would look outward and listen to other people facing their own mortality. Not really people who were recovering from a near-death experience like me, but people who were living with a terminal or life-limiting illness or were over the age of 70. People who wanted to talk about the choices they'd made about uh, and the things they wanted the rest of us to realise before it was too late. I put on notices in my local libraries and community centres. I got in touch with support groups and online forums, asking those who wanted to talk to get in touch. And they did, from all over the world and from many different backgrounds. The youngest was 28 and the oldest was 94. We met in person, connected over the phone, and in some cases, when talking was too hard for them via email. And what started as a mission for answers has turned into a book, a collection of 21 stories of regret from around the world, to help those of us who find ourselves at a similar crossroads in life. Stories about love, family, and secrets, about last words spoken, and regrets within grief. And that is what happened to me. I listened to what everyone had to say, then listened to myself, uh, uh, and finally managed to move on. Ellen had spent decades building a successful career, chasing promotion after promotion. But after he was diagnosed with an incurable brain tumour at 49, it took him less than six months to realise that he had wasted most of his life, and wish he had taken a different path. Sid was 73 when I spoke to him, and living with asbestosis on his lungs. Uh, yeah, I said that right. He told me how, in his early 20s, he had ended a relationship with a woman whom he would soon regard as the love of his life. He went on to spend the next 50 years wondering what could have been and regretting his decision to leave. Anthea has had been raised to think uh, she wasn't enough, that she had to diet to be slimmer and use some beds to be browner. Some beds that would lead her to develop terminal melanoma in her mid-40s, which then spread to her major organs and sadly, sadly cut her life short. Kate was diagnosed with bowel cancer at 31 and died just a year later, leaving behind two young children and a loving husband. Alan taught me that we shouldn't worry about the things that we can't control. Sid showed me uh, that you should always follow your heart or risk losing it. Anthea explained that we are enough just the way we are, even though we can't always see it in ourselves. And Katie wanted us to appreciate all that we had, but probably took for granted, just as I had all those years ago. She wanted the privilege of growing old with her partner and the chance to watch her kids grow up. But when she knew she was running out of time, it became clear that it was the little moments in life that she would come to treasure the most. That there was no bucket list to tick off or grand plans left to do. That they all fell away when the reality of her situation became undeniable. That she just wanted to be there to see her kids enjoy Christmas, to help celebrate their birthdays and to go to the beach and watch them play. Katie wanted us to appreciate the everyday moments because in the end... She felt they were the things that we will remember and cherish and hold the closest. And that's why I realised after talking to all of these different people, 
that when we look back, what we treasure the most isn't the grand holidays, the promotions, or the adventures I had always longed for, that in the end, it's the, those little moments that we dismiss so easily that make our lives so very, very big. My life isn't perfect now. Mo- hard moments still exist, tricky decisions still t- uh, to be made, and I still find myself worrying that I'm going to fail or not be good enough. But my regrets don't consume me anymore. They don't feel all my quiet moments because I can see them for what they are. Decisions made for the right reasons at the time, and choices taken to try and rewrite try to rewrite history and the situations I found myself in. And once you can see the connections between your actions and the reason for them, somehow they feel less overwhelming. They feel less like a sign that you've failed more, uh, failed and more like a normal human reaction you can learn from. Now I listen to my gut. Now the choices I make no longer bind me to a long list of second guesses. I took control of my life and started to make all the, of the changes that were long overdue thanks to listening to the advice of the people I spoke to. I had been estranged from my mum for a number of years, and I had man- and I managed to find a way for us to reconnect before it was too late. I stopped worrying so much about my work being rejected and started sen- sending it out instead. And after decades of yo-yo dieting, I started practicing moderation and slowly and gradually lost more than 50 pounds and brackets and kept it off. But the biggest and most life-altering change I made was the decision to end my 22-year relationship. After four years of courtship and 18 years of marriage, it was time to call it a day. We had tried and tried to make it work, but it just didn't work anymore, and neither of us was happy. So, after years of hesitation, we separated and became friends who co-parent instead. We are now a family in two two happier parts. Uh, He comes around for pancakes, we spend holidays together, and once a year, on what would have been our wedding anniversary, we have a quote-unquote family day, a day out to enjoy and celebrate all the positive things we shared. That moment when I nearly died and all the time I spent, I have spent listening to people talk about their own regrets finally made me click out of screensaver mode. It made me realise that we need to change the things that no longer make us happy and try to fully appreciate all the things that uh, that do. Living with regrets can feel like a very negative thing and yet they can also, uh, if kept in perspective, act as a reminder of all the things we want to do and all the things we need to change if we just listen to them. Hearing all these amazing stories has helped me to understand all that. I hope that maybe reading about them will help others see it too. So that's a little uh, snippet, I guess. Um, an, over, an overall of the book itself is called uh, Regrets of the Dying Stories and Wisdom that Reminds Us How to Live by Georgina Skull. Um, it's published, uh, it'll be on 14th of April in hardback, which is literally on drop day, I think. Hey, yeah, drop day of this episode. So as soon as you, as soon as you hear this episode, you can buy it. Um and yeah, seventeen quid um, on on hardback if you want it. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. Um, she mentioned the little things, right, and um, cherishing them. Something I something I was asked on uh, on the DITD anniversary, um, and I'll I'll regurgitate it here because um, it applies. Um, Ben asked me one of the questions was uh, when was the moment you were most happiest, and it was weird because I genuinely couldn't think of an answer for a minute. Um, but for for some reason it came down to one right and it wasn't a and it, and it wasn't a holiday it wasn't a concert i've been to even though pound for pound uh, you know i was probably you know very elated in those moments right i, I you know i was I, I was loved being in turkey to watch the world championships in 2009 watching usain bolt break the record at like 2am right i really i love that it was a great moment in my life right um 
I love, you know, hitting several concerts I can think of, right? Master Ace, Rhapsody, Kendrick, uh, Little Sims several times, uh, 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 Maiden Voyage last year. I'm, I'm, I can't wait for co- across the tracks this year. Um, so many, right? Um, Robert Glasper the other night, right? But none of them compared to this small moment, small moment of a, of like a, of, a, of like a day and a bit, um, where it was the day, but specifically this moment, this day anyway, this night, the day before my, uh, or the uh, the night before, it's either the night before or now I'm thinking about it, it might have been the the at the night of, um, after everything, um, of my auntie's funeral. Um, so I, I ha- at that point I'd hadn't seen my cousin L in years, right? Um, probably a, nearly near on a decade. Um, and th- something about me personally, very deep, right? But bear with me. So back as a kid, I used to visit my nan and my auntie and my cousin, right? And they all live in the same house in Dalston and we'd visit right, um, me, my dad, my sister, and my mum, right, we'd visit, um, and, you know, it basically how, how it would work is that my sister would go upstairs to see, to chill my auntie, uh, my cousin might be on his, either, either, would either be on his own, or with my sister and uh, auntie, um, and I, as the youngest, uh, I was, like, under 10 years old, would be, um, uh, with my dad, my mum, and my nan, and I'd love to, you know, you know, I'd love to be with my nan, I love those moments, right, um, I, I remember her, I remember sitting on her lap. I remember, you know, sitting below her. Um, I remember sitting on, you know, just watching TV together, and you know, just just nice. But you know, dates where I had breakfast, uh, stayed there for a couple of days, had breakfast, watched TV, and you know, just I remember, I remember her vividly, right? And that's, and I, I appreciate that. Um, but the thing I really wanted then, and I still want now, but I can't have now is the opportunity to be in the conversations. Being the youngest there was, like, really kind of annoying because it was just, like, I want to be in these conversations. I want to be able to conversate with my nan and my and my parents and, you know, and banter with my auntie and my sister and my cousin. I want that. I, I wanted to be in the conversations. I wanted to be an adult so bad in those moments to, to, to have those, you know fun conversations with them, you know what I mean, as, as we're all adults now, and, uh, well, I'm an adult now, and, you know, you're all elders to me, and, you know, we can just banter about stuff, right, I, I wanted that camaraderie, but I never got the opportunity, my nan died around the, around I was like 10 or 11, and my auntie died um, about 10 years later, um, and we, and I hadn't seen my auntie after that, um, in the, in between, in the in-between, um, so, I never got those moments, and, um, but after it was either again, either after or before uh, the funeral, maybe both. Um, I got that moment briefly. I briefly got that moment. It wasn't with everyone, but it was with my sister and my cousin. And we sat, we sat, uh, smoked up a bit, uh, got something to eat, watched TV. Uh, I think we were watching the Brits. Um, and we we're just, we we're just chatting, man. We we're just chatting. As adults, you know what I mean? Like they're, they're 10 years older than me. I was like 22, 23 at the time. Um, so, yeah. They were, they, we were all adults and we are just chatting. We are just catching up. And uh, it was just cool. 
and I don't know why, but I just felt so. I felt really whole then. I don't. I don't. Is it happiness? I guess so. I felt happy then, and it's a memory I'll like. It's something that I always wanted. Uh, I didn't get it as much as I, you know, I didn't get it in the full picture as I wanted. You know what I mean? To be with everybody. Um, but it is what it is. I got a bit of it. I got a taste of it, and uh, I'll definitely cherish that. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting that the article, the article, the book, except whatever it is, um, you know, it's interesting that that was the point, main point made of um, you know, not remembering the the big moments of you know the promotion or the big holiday where they spent years planning or whatever. It's that little shit. It's that little stuff. Um, and um, yeah, it's just a lot. There's just a lot of. Uh, it's a lot of times where I just want I wanted that I wanted that simple thing of just being able to banter with you know everybody and uh, you know I get it I get it in spurts I can banter with my mum I can banter with my sister we have as a family we have banter I have banter with my dad um, now which is good um, and I and I really love it I love it I love those moments I really do those are the moments I cherish the most of just um, making my pe making my people laugh um, you know because I. <laughs> I don't. I don't feel like. I feel, I feel like I. I've always wanted to do that. Um, to see them. To see me give them a moment of joy. You know what I mean. Um, but yeah, man. Those are the moments. Those, those are the moments I remember. I, I maybe not remember as you know. It might be not the biggest things ever. But those are the small moments that that, that I think the the people you know near death or at death's door are talking about. Those are the small moments. Yeah, I think I think is is the is the things you work that are, are worth keeping, and are priceless to have. Um, so, yeah. But I said I'll leave it there, ladies and gentlemen. From the fifth and podcast network, I've been Charlie Taylor. This been most good. Intro music has been too much by Vanilla. You can find his link in the full show notes. Thanks to Joe Brex for being used track. You can also find their link in the full show notes. And thanks to Happy Hire for being used charismatic for the interlude. It has an EP coming out actually uh, soon, so uh, go check him. Uh, but you can also find his link, regardless of that. You find his link, unfortunately. And when I said, um, remember your moments, remember those small moments. Hope you all have a good week. I shall definitely always try and do the same. But until the next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.